You're listening to the Build Assets Online Podcast. Learn how you You. can build a diverse and sustainable income online from two brothers who actually do it. Now, here are your hosts, Mike and Joe. All right, everyone. Welcome to the stream. We have Joe, Mike, and Pat Yates today. Very exciting episode. Pat Yates is from Quiet Light Brokerage, and we recently sold a site on Quiet Light Brokerage. I believe it was for $650,050 or something like that. And uh, I believe it's actually probably a small size deal for what you guys do on Quiet Light, Pat, but I, I want to get to that a little later. Right. Um, but in today's episode, we're going to be exploring, we're going to go through Pat's history. We're going to talk about the website uh, buying and selling marketplace right now. And you know, I want to kind of talk a little about this deal This deal we did with Quiet Light because it was the first one. And yeah, break it down for you guys who are looking to get into this to, to sell your website. So welcome to the show, Pat. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Good to be here, guys. All right. So one of the things, if you've seen Pat before, if his, his face looks familiar, it's because he was on Shark Tank. So Pat, um, why don't you give us a little bit of, about your history uh, and the whole the whole Shark Tank thing? Are you still involved with with your business on there? Let, I, let's hear about that. I am I would, I'm what you would say passively involved. I have some great people that run that business for me. It's been a 20 year exciting journey. It's been uh, just like anything else, you know, entrepreneurs talk about how everything's a roller coaster, how you start thinking about things you did in the very beginning. And, you know, I started basically when the dot com was really growing. I had a massive wholesale business. We were doing kiosks and malls, which now is completely gone. It's just not a very good industry. Uh, we've been down every license, DreamWorks, Disney, NFL, MLB, small licenses, everything you could possibly do. So my my experience in e-com and in, in retail is is really deep and immense. And I've been down some really good things and a lot of really bad things. And now, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough not only to do that, to be an advisor, quite light and selling companies for one of the best in the industry. And, you know, we see a lot of companies come in and out of here. So it's really like getting an MBA every single day on on people's businesses. It's such a great challenge to learn how to help them and not only to grow their business, but to hopefully exit much like what you guys did. Yes. I mean, you've been involved in in online business for, it seems like since the beginning, right? Pretty much. So yeah, I mean, you're very, very knowledgeable when it comes to not just, you know, websites, the way that we interpret them, but the way that, you know, a lot of these big buyers interpret websites. But so uh, let me go to my list of questions here because I did prepare some stuff. So, okay. So when you did Shark Tank, you were selling, um, what was it like slippers? Like it was licensed um, yeah. slipper type thing. So Happy Feet Slippers was the company that I started back in uh, in the early 2000s. I actually bought this this business for my family. We were doing kiosks and they happened to find this in a trade show in Atlanta. If anyone's ever been to the Atlanta gift mart, it was just legitimately walking through and finding a product that had just been introduced. It had been patented back in 1995 and then um, obviously trademarked. And then we rolled into doing it in kiosks. Well, I started to concentrate on .com because I saw that as the 80-20 because what I was doing was selling low margin wholesale to a lot of people who were selling in kiosks. And it actually helped me build my .com basis because it had the name on the back of the, the product. So when people would get out of these kiosks, they would go to the website to find my product. And then we rolled into Amazon in the late 2000s or probably 2007, 2008, started doing and been doing Amazon for 14 or 15 years. Uh, but just really a, a, a broad gamut of e-com. So I've, I've done about anything that you could imagine, soup to nuts, whether it's international or, or domestic. So, I mean, that's, I mean, so so you basically summarized your entire business, which seems like it spanned 20 years in like one minute. <laughs> um, but I saw, yeah. I can imagine it was a little bit more complicated than that. A lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the reason I bring this up is because Joe and I have talked about like Shark Tank a lot of times because I think people, when they're exposed to like entrepreneurship and I don't know if, if what you would, you know, if you would call what we do entrepreneurship, but people are exposed to it 
through Shark Tank, a lot of times what you see is like people, you know, mortgage their houses and do yeah. all this crazy stuff to start like some random rinky dink cheap product. And the way that we approach online business is kind of like, hey, you don't need to do that. You don't even you don't need to do something you're passionate about. Yeah. You can start a business for like a really, really low budget and just slowly build it up. Right. Uh, so is a lot of what you like, how do you feel about that business you were involved in now versus you know, you're a quiet light. You see a lot of people that are just building these websites that are, they have like no infrastructure, you know, like it's yeah. just like a SEO website that has no expenses. And, you know, what are, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, I think that the industry's changed significantly. And I think some of the things that would work now probably wouldn't have worked as well in the past. I think that you, you even think back to something really simple. It's like if people think to their systems, they were using the alert 2000s, you know, you had nothing but external systems. Web apps were important and you had some, but it wasn't as easy as it is today. I think the more that I've looked at businesses, we've gone through the, you know, 2010 or 12 on through now, so many other businesses have evolved that are so much easier. You know, the run rate is less expensive. You don't have to develop a product. You know, we went through a time when dropship and resale, which is what you guys concentrate on, was really taking a, a steep growth. But then it's sort of leveled off a little bit because a lot of times these aggregators and other people buying want to look at owning a brand. And that's not always the enemy of, of a sale, as which you guys proved. I think building a business that you can scale is much more important. So, for instance, fitting a square peg in a round hole, if you don't have capital to develop your own product, it's just ridiculous. You should go out and try something else build a business on someone else's dime and their brand like you're talking about. It's a great way to go about it. And I think sometimes it may be better to do something like that in the initial stages because you learn the mistakes you can make. And then if you go into something much bigger, at least you can carry those forward with you. Any of those things are really good learning experiences. It just depends on if you're a good product development person and you have something that's proprietary. If not, then you need to look into something like what uh, you're talking about in that situation, which isn't a, a horrible way to go about it either. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is uh, creating demand versus like, you know, taking advantage of demand. When you're creating your own product, you oftentimes there might be like a market for those similar types of products, but you oftentimes have to create demand. You have to create awareness and you have to give reason like a really people a really big reason to buy it. And I think that's a lot of work. And not only that, like like if you look at what we do, where we recommend what we recommend starting out with is you know you're basically just learning online marketing and taking advantage of existing demand, whether that is um, search queries, product queries, anything yeah. like that. And then once you learn how to do that, then I think you can worry about um, you know creating demand for a product because that's definitely a lot harder and there's a lot more hoops to uh, to jump through with it. So that that's that's the big difference. Um, for me. And, and, and also you guys are doing something that's kind of amazing. It's like, you know, 15 years ago, you didn't have these kind of resources all the time to be able to learn from guys like you to be able to go in and, and have consultants all over the world. I mean, dot com has changed so much from when I started. If you go into upworking work people anywhere that you can learn trades and, and, and different aspects of a business that you didn't know about. So many masterminds, other things like podcasts. It's amazing how much content is online for people to be able to learn that. So the difficulty in, of, of getting into a business like this isn't as difficult as it used to be. It's just you have to find, find the right areas. Yeah, cool. absolutely. And that's kind of our favorite thing about what we do is, yeah, like the technology of today, you don't have to start this business where you're getting in products. For, you know, you have to do like product research and like you said, create your own product. There's so many ways now to create value in the marketplace and right. create websites that require uh, not much overhead. You can do from home and you have all of a sudden an asset that you can sell. And so on that point, um, we did list and sell a business with you, a dropshipping business. Uh, yeah. A couple months ago, we sold it for you know upwards of 
$600,000. And so this was our biggest site sale to date. And this was our first sale using quiet light brokerage in the past. We had used empire flippers and, um, you know, to some other, other marketplaces. So like with quiet light, a lot of our students know about empire flippers, but kind of what's the difference between what you guys do and empire flippers and, you know, what's your value in the, in the market? That's a great question. And obviously we have this discussion a lot and I'll say this by, you know, right off the jump. I mean, any brokers you're going to talk to, you typically are going to have pretty, you know, smart people that are going to be able to work with you. We never talk poorly about anybody that works out in this industry because the truth of the matter is we stuck up a great relationship. I didn't do everything perfectly when we did our deal, but I was very upfront. We listened to the things you needed and we went out and worked really, really hard with buyers. I think that what you want is someone that's truly committed. The difference in quiet light, we always say, is that we're entrepreneurs like you, unlike some people who are M&A employees. That's not to knock on them. It's just that we've been through a lot of things. If someone is out there ready to sell their business and they remember five years ago when they were trying to figure out how to get gas in their car because they just couldn't afford to in their downtime and, and they've been through these struggles, we're extremely sensitive to that. We look at certain things like right now, last year through the supply chain issue, I ended up losing six figures because of the way that containers came in, internal transport in the United States, transloading, warehousing, distribution, all those things I can talk intelligently to from a very personal standpoint. So while people can read articles, I've been through every one of them and I'm going through it every day. So a lot of times it's much better to have the temperature of, the, of what goes on. But at the end of the day, what you really want in any listing are several things. Number one, you want the right broker that you have a good rapport with. Number two, you want to be able to try to achieve their goals. And it's not always going to work out. Like I had a conversation this morning and I spoke with a guy who said, well, another brokerage told me they could get me X dollars for it. And I said, then I would sign with them. I really would. I said, I would love to hear the story. And if you need any help or you have any questions, come back. But I, I, if I can't get that, there's no ego in this situation. All we care about is that you exit at the value you want. We're not always perfect for everybody, but we feel like we really dig in and do a very good job from an entrepreneurial standpoint. That's really, you know, I'm very entrepreneur centric. I've used that word before. It's about them, not me. And it was about you guys, not me. When we did that deal, you heard me say it. Yeah, I definitely felt that way during the deal as well. I don't think so with Empire Flip, like I really felt like when we were working with you, like you were actually like working really hard to to sell the site. And I don't think uh, based on our experiences with Empire Flippers, we sold some sites, smaller sites on Flippa before. Um, I don't know. I don't remember it being like that where, you know, just basically the, the level of exclusive service that you were that you were giving to the site. But that being said, um, what is the minimum size that you take on Quiet Lake? Because that is one of the big differences, right, between the other marketplaces. Right. I, well, maybe. I mean, I had a lady come in that was barely breaking even. She was a 60 year lady that wanted to get away from her business because she needed to retire and she had a little bit of money that was available via her inventory. And I tried to help her because, you know, we that's one of the differences. It just is we're, we're we understand what people are going through. So while we'll take some deals that are distressed and they're in and not the best situation, it's not usually the norm. Typically, what we're looking for at Quiet Light is businesses are growing month over month, year over year, as well as having SDE or, or what we call SDE, sell discretionary earnings, which is your net profit plus ad backs, hopefully in the range of, you know, 50 to 60,000, because if not, then you're talking about a fee that's probably prohibitive to the person selling. So to me, if you have something that's making 50 or 60,000 to the bottom line, depending on the multiple and the vertical, you can get up at 150 to $200,000 sale point. That's kind of where we want to start, but it's not necessarily a hard line. Because we, you know, we want to try to look at the entrepreneur in the situation and understand the things around it. Like as an example, I have one really great sale last year for a gentleman who had a really challenged business and he had Lyme disease and he was not 
healthy and he needed to get away from it. Not even a brokerage would even take his deal because it was a resale account of, of consignment items. It was really niched, but we found a way to be able to sell that business. And then he was able to move on and work on his health issues. Those are kind of things that are important to me. So the price is important, and, but I really believe that the entrepreneur in the, in the situation is much more important to me. Yeah. So basically, gotcha, why gotcha. like, like, as yeah, a, no, I was, um, I think you go, go. here, um, Mike, or is that Pat's connection? I think it's you, Joe. One sec, guys. I'm just going to move rooms. You guys can keep uh, talking. Hold on. There is one question down there. I guess I can answer that while we're doing it. Based on your spinner, there are certain industries that come in demand are bigger site sales than other. It's a great question. So when you're looking at um, selling or exiting your business, number one, most of you are going to be Amazon sellers. But if you're a direct e-com seller, that's not as exciting as an 80-20 Amazon to aggregator. So let's look at let's look at three different segments of buyers. One will be individual buyers that probably look at about anything, whether it's direct e-com or direct e-com and Amazon content, whatever. But probably most of those buyers, if it's not SBA eligible, you're talking about something 100,000 to six or 700,000 because typically there are many cash deals. When you go above that, you're looking at aggregators and typically they're going to want 80% Amazon, 20% direct site. That's the, that's the best model. If you have 100% Amazon, most of them really like that, but you need to at least be getting for aggregators probably to an SDE of 150 to 200,000 a year. And then you need to have something that's growing month over month, year over year. So that's the best spot. Yeah. So. I'll try to break that down a little bit because, uh, I mean, typically our our audience they're not doing Amazon stuff. A lot of times we advise against Amazon because you know I think for someone that's really looking to build a business off the ground, there is that startup cost with Amazon. There is that risk of hey, you get in a product and you know no one cares about it, and, and just the idea of Amazon having a lot of control over your business is not something we're fond of. I mean, we had a you know Kindle business. We've done Amazon stuff like. And we still do Amazon affiliate today. We had Kindle businesses that we sold, but um, the majority of people that are watching this, you know, they're doing e-commerce, um, like drop shipping. They're doing, you know, the blog sites, the content sites, etc. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're saying um, a lot of times when you start getting into a price point that's like above seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars, the majority of people that are going to buy that would be what you're calling aggregators, which is yeah. right. So, an aggregator. Uh, could you define that? Yeah. Yeah. So what we're talking about, so individual buyers, if I had to guess, I mean, obviously there's a lot of affluent buyers out there that are individuals buying their own companies with their own money. They can buy millions of dollar business all across. It's just not the norm. So anything under, you know, typically individual buyers are probably their sweet spot is less than five to 600,000. Aggregators are people out there trying to aggregate and buy multiple e-com businesses, Amazon businesses, put them into one bundle and run them together. And those typically don't look at as much dropship. So dropship and resale accounts are typically going to be individuals because most of the aggregators want brands. So it's a little bit different in that. And, right. and, and what you're building is not wrong. It's just not always going to be the top end multiple. It's it's easier to grow. It's easier to scale, but it's it's a little more difficult to exit, I guess. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's definitely something that we're aware of that, you know, say if you have a product that's selling really well on Amazon, that's probably one of the the easiest things to sell because there is so much, um, you know, aggregator or like just like big private companies looking to roll up a bunch of products and resell them. So we're aware of that. But for us, you know, the majority of people that, you know, what are in our course and, and watch our videos are kind of just at home looking to build something. And yeah. I mean, in my opinion, you know, like the first site that we ever sold, we had it for maybe a year and a half. It was a dropship site. And then we sold it for one hundred thirty three thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like that was our really our first adventure into this. Yeah. And so 
I don't think by having like a physical product selling it on Amazon, you would necessarily be able to achieve that, like those kind of results that consistently, right? Because there are so many people that try and do Amazon FBA and, you know, they get screwed over like a, comp- you know, a competitor from China comes in, beats sure. them out on price. There's so many factors outside of your control on Amazon that while there's, there's a high reward, in my opinion, there's, there's also a high risk. I mean, have you seen anything like someone tries to list their Amazon site or, or sorry, their Amazon um, FBA business and then something happens like while it's listed and the business completely uh, takes a hit? We have we have seen businesses that go into decline while you're in that. Typically, you're already under negotiation in LOI and only affects the price, but there have been times when it falls out. Look, the model that you're doing is a great model, especially when people are getting started to learn the way to get an Amazon, to get into a direct site. Doing dropship gives you an MBA in how to do e-com. And sometimes while you may strive to look at having your own brand and build your own product, this is a great way to insert yourself in and learn business, especially in a passive standpoint. So I think it's great. But yeah, we definitely do see some that, that you know, you have some issues with an account sort of buckling as people are going in. I've especially seen situations where I've gone into long diligence after LOI, where people take their eye off their company a little bit and they start concentrating on all the stuff they're supposed to be submitting and their sales either flatline or drop down because they're just not watching it. That's something people really have to watch because if you fall out of offer, then you're li- then you're on a decline and you don't really want to be in that position. So it's always just a matter of being able to be there. But I think especially for people that are new and don't get in a position where they know how to build a brand, that's a long run to exactly. build a brand. This gives you an opportunity to get into business faster, quicker, and maybe even turn it quicker. Like you said, there's a good chance people can build and turn and sell one before they could build a brand. That that obviously could be the case. Yeah. When we're talking about Amazon businesses, Pat, um, or just building a brand in general, um, first, sorry, I was having some connection issues. Uh, I saw one of the questions we have is to, uh, I wanted, we wanted Pat to define an aggregator. Did he do that yet? Yeah, we talked about that. A little bit about aggregators. Okay. So, some aggregators, I did misspoke on one thing. You know, a lot of aggregators come in to give us a, a minimum, say, SDE of 300 to 500,000. They only want deals a million to two, three, five million. There are some out there that will take lower ones. And it's just a matter of being niche. And the best thing that people can do is have as many conversations with brokers as you can. It's not, a, no one cares that you're going to talk to 15 different brokers because they're all going to have different views and they've all sold different businesses. A lot of times you can get really good insight by just asking the right questions about your vertical, talk to several, and then you're going to find the right one that's worked in that industry before. I mean, would you define an aggregator as just any company that's buying multiple websites or businesses in just like the same vertical or in the same business yeah. model? You know what I mean? Like if, if we had... um. A website that was if we had like a dropship store that was selling couches and then we came to you and we said hey i want to buy every couch e-commerce store that comes your way if there's a blog site that's like has you know amazon affiliate for couches i want that and you know like would i be an aggregator at that point yeah i mean i think that the word aggregator is more a term it's than than a distinction i guess is the best way to put it it's more like the best term to use would be aggregation and what aggregation means is taking those you know multiple stores and let's say you buy if you have one store in the middle and you buy three stores around it you then have four the beauty of that model and why people want that and it's pretty simple if you're listing with us and your bottom line profit sde whatever you want to call it ebitda is two hundred thousand dollars let's say it's an amazon ecom mix and it's a normal rate of say we'll do three and a half multiple. Let's just say that for the sake of saying the profitability of the same business at 500,000 is probably more at 375 to four. At 750 to a million, it's four to four to five. And if you get over 2 million or 3 million, you might get five or six X. So people are out there thinking now 
Obviously, if you took five different $200,000 minimum businesses, put them together at a million dollars, ran them for a year. So you had them for a full year. You might have something that the multiple goes up 50% just because they're bundled. So that's the aggregation model. That's no. you got you got less expenses because you only need one ship station account. You need one SKU vault or channel advisor, whatever you're using. All your systems and your expenses don't <laughs> scale at the same level that they did as an individual business. That's what is considered aggregation model. People that are doing that are considered the aggregators. So, Joe, you have something to say? Yeah. So is the whole idea of aggregation most of the time from your perspective based on what the way most people do it? Is it based on what you're describing in terms of consolidating costs? Or is it based on like synergistic things? Like you have a like what Mike was talking about, like you have a one blog site that's all about couches mm -hmm. and then you have an e-commerce store selling couches. So is, is it more about consolidating systems or like consolidating traffic? If that's, I, I, think I always that, think about in terms of traffic. That's a great question. And, and really it's kind of both. It's, it's a little bit that, okay, like let, we'll give an example. The people that bought um, your business, they deal in home goods pretty much exclusively. Like you guys had like fence gates, anything from fence gate into the house is what they buy. They stick in one model. They try to really cross promote. Once they get, if they buy five businesses with a hundred thousand people, they now have 500,000 leads they can cross promote. That is the idea. So yes, I think that it, it saves you money in, in some of the things you do that are the economies of scale that you're already doing in your other companies. You don't have to spend in five companies. And then the other model, like you said, that it raises that multiple and then continues to cross promote to grow each company. You know, there, if you talk to aggregators, they'll talk a big game about being able to double, triple or quadruple a company within two or three years. But a lot of times, if you put the right things around it and you buy that customer base via acquisition, you can do that. Right. So I'm going to try and, and slow you down a little bit because that's hard to do. <laughs> I know. And that's one of the reasons we actually wanted to get you uh, on the podcast is because, I mean, for ourselves, we have these questions of, I mean, it, what we're talking about now. And, um, you know, yeah. again, I think I think a lot of our audience may be very new to these to these terms. And so. Yeah, but I'm gonna be honest. When you talk, I don't, I don't understand half the acronyms that you that you use. <laughs> I have to come up with some good ones for you. Well, <laughs> you know, it's Joe Valley. Joe Valley at Quite Light likes to talk about how much I talk, which is way too much. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, that's one of the reasons we we liked you because I mean, I think you speak both you speak the both languages. You know, like if we were to go and try and um, like at one point for the site that we sold. We were contemplating, uh, like getting like a pitch deck done to get, to, I, I don't know, do all sorts of stupid things to to see if we can like sell it or or get funding, um, with like you know these these more venture capital like type yeah. companies. But at at the end of the day, like I, we are totally separate from that world. I don't like that world. I don't want to be involved in it. You are are truly the uh the glue between you know, because I, I I think a lot of times, correct me if I'm wrong, like. A lot of the sellers of these types of businesses are typically more, you know, independent type operations, right? Sure. Yeah. Most of them. So, yeah, I think it's like it is it is almost two different worlds, right? Where like the Joe and I are interested in like building the businesses and like I don't I don't even like the word entrepreneur because I don't I don't feel like I am that. I don't feel like I'm bringing necessarily like new ideas or new products to the marketplace or like doing anything of that sort of value. I just think, you know, we know how to build online businesses and then we we do it. And so I am I am interested in this idea of aggregation because you know to me it seems like something that even we could leverage by by the fact that okay you know we okay we we start a dropshipping store and then the way that we look at it is you know we start running paid ads we start seeing what sells and then okay we can say 
all right, this product is selling. Now we can potentially go in and buy another website that is related to that. And you're, you were talking um, ra- rather fast about like how the multiples can change and how the sure. earnings can change. Yeah. But one thing I wanted to clarify was like, will the multiple of a website or, or the multiple of say a, a business bundle go up just inherently by having it be a bundle or yeah. is it a matter of like, is there the, the traffic diversification part? Is it the revenue diversification part that is making the difference? There, there's, there, there's a lot in that. So let, let's kind of, let's, let's back up and we'll start that whole conversation again about how multiples grow. So let's just say, for instance, we have an 80-20 Amazon that makes 150 or $200,000 and it's, it's a proprietary product and they have a trademark. Let's just use that as an example. Okay. So a business, that, a business that's making $150,000 per year, like net profit. Right. It's on Amazon doing 80% of its business on Amazon, 20% say through a website, you know, their own website, whatever. Right. And they have, they have a, a trademark. Okay. Trademark in their own product. And you're probably talking about in that business. If it's something that's making about a hundred thousand, you're probably starting off at no, no less than three, two, five to three, seven, five. Okay. And that depends on the model, like as the yearly multiple, right? So it's as making $150,000 discretionary earnings, which is your net right. profit plus ad backs. Now, there are things that matter. Like if you only have five items and everything is 20% of your sales, then that's risky. You've got, there's four things that matter in a sale. Joe Valley's book, if people don't have the entrepreneur playbook, please look that up and I'll show you what that book is if they want it. That will prepare you to sell your company. It's exactly what we do. There's risk, growth, transferability, and documentation. Those are the four things. Now, risk comes in on the late latency of the scheme. You only have four or five, then it's highly risky. You lose one, you get taken down, you've lost 20% of the business. So investors will ding you. You might get down to a three, two, five, or three oh if you have low number of SKUs. If you have really balanced SKUs, say 20 of them, and there's none that are above, say, 5% as it sits there, then you're probably going to be able to stick at that three, five range or three, seven, five, because you don't have anything that's really, really concentrated on one SKU. Now, if you were making four or five hundred thousand, you're most likely going to move that three, two, five to three, seven, five to three, five to four and probably closer to the top of that. And the more that that increases that profit, like if that business went to 750 and it's still just the one business, it's definitely going to be somewhere closer to three, seven, five to four, two, five. So it increases based on several factors, but most of them are financially driven and structure driven. And then it really depends on if you're on an up uptick or a, or a, or a flat line. And that'll be the last thing that we do to determine it. So and I want to talk about those two things real quick. Yeah. So you said, you just said just now, the nature of the business being more profitable. So you, you said, okay, instead of the business earning $150,000 net profit per year and getting a 3.3 times yearly multiple, right. if you can increase that business's profit to five or $500,000 per year through whatever means, it's inherently going to get a higher multiple. 100%. You know, look, if we're based at three, let's say for instance, at 100,000, you, if we base you at three, two, five, if that same business in the same situation was making five to 600,000, there's a good chance it'd be closer to three, five or three, seven, five. And the reason goes back to the same first principle, which is risk. At the end of the day, it takes longer to lose full profit of a $500,000 business than 100,000. It's the risk profile. It's the ability to be able to make sure that the business is cash flowed. And plus, you know that if a business is making 500,000, it can take several more hits than a hundred thousand dollar business, regardless of what that hit is. Supply chain, which is going to be worse this year. 
It's going to be worse this year. People better prepare. Uh, those kind of things will affect it. You know, last year I lost six figures in bottom line profit in the econ business that I own because of supply chain costs, easily six figures. So sometimes those externals will come in and if the profit drops down, then it makes it a more risky business, thus plummeting that, that thing. In worst cases, you'll get beat up by those investors and they'll try to offer you less. That's really interesting because um, taking it back for a second, the whole reason me and Mike got into this was to, I guess, achieve financial freedom from our, our regular jobs way back, you know, many years ago. Right. And so now that we've sold a couple of websites with you and with other people, um, we're kind of exploring the mindset of not really selling as much as many websites as we used to. And it seems like based on what you're saying that that can kind of be a good idea if you grow over like, like if your idea is just to grow the profit long-term and get the profit to as high a number of pos as, as possible, you're going to get a higher multiple. Yeah, you are. But it also depends on the vertical. So understand that like the $100,000 bottom line, let's break that down. It's going to get a better multiple with 100% Amazon as their business. It's well, going to be just talking Amazon. Sorry to cut you off. Does that change at all if we're not talking about Amazon? No, no. I, I know we're not. Yeah, that's what I was going to walk into. So if you're 100% Amazon, you might be at this level on your multiple at 100,000. These these are aggregators' views. I'm going to give you the aggregator view. 100% okay. Amazon is going to be here, whatever that multiple is, fictitious. Amazon and Ecom Blend is going to be right here. Content is probably going to be in the middle or even above it because it didn't have cost of goods sold. But resale and dropship are going to be well down from that because you don't control your product. That's the only thing. So sometimes the vertical is going to matter as well. So it's something to make it 100,000 only dropship might be at a two, two, five, to two, five, to two, seven, five multiple just because they don't control their own product. So I just want to make sure that part's clear. No, that's, I mean, that's certainly clear. And I, yeah, I, I would agree dropshipping probably gets the worst multiple. On the other hand, it is, the, it is the easiest thing to build from zero right. to a point that, you know, you're able to pay your bills. You're able to quit your job. And so I think, I think that's, that's kind of. I, and I agree with you. Yeah. I think that it just depends what you want to be in. You could probably build three dropship businesses by the time you build and scale a brand. That's exactly. honestly yeah. probably the case. Let me ask you a question, Pat. Um, so, you know, the kind of website we sold, we were selling expensive sure. products sure. in your, in dropshipping them, in your experience, have you seen people sell website that people sell dropshipping websites that sold expensive products like we did, but also had a uh, private labeling aspect in there. Have you seen that in your time? Yeah, there are some and, and we've run across those businesses. But what ends up ha happening during it, that always becomes a discussion of, hey, I like this portion of the business and not the other portion. You know, I don't want to resell part. I want to buy this. So it's opened up conversations based on the philosophy of the people. But I have seen mixes like that because there are a lot of people out there that start with a resale account and then figure out, hey, there, here's a widget I'd really like to make. And they talk to the same vendors they're working for and they make them and all of a sudden you have a brand. So it happens regularly and people should strive to be able to do that. And I don't think it's a negative. It just makes it sort of a crossbreed, I guess is the best way to put it. Right. And you're saying that you've seen buyers, they don't really, I would assume you would view that as kind of a, a diversification type thing. It would be harder to take it down, but you're saying philosophically people either typically want it one way or the other. I think they do. Because, I mean, think about it. If you're an aggregator who buys only brands and you don't do reseller dropship, you're sort of in a, you know, a middle right. ground there. So it's, it's, it leaves it a little niche for the purchase, but it's not a negative. I mean, there's nothing wrong with developing a brand inside of it. And here's the reality. If that's a problem when you go to market, then go back and split it off. Take the brand and make it its own and then take the resale account and leave it itself. And you can always do that and make another account, move it and wait six months. I mean, it's not the enemy of a sale. It's just the timing and structure to me. Well, so you, you mentioned something. 
um, you know, we're talking about risk being the number one factor in a multiple, but you're saying that a 100% Amazon business will have potentially the highest multiple. And I don't understand how that could be from a risk standpoint, because I think that's the most risky thing you could do. Why, why wouldn't an aggregator rather have a business that is 100% based in your own infrastructure, on your own website, with your own traffic that you control, you have pixel, you can remarket to, versus a business that's totally on Amazon. Someone can come and copy you, uh, take the buy box. There's like, a, you know, Amazon can screw something up, suspend you. Why, did, why is that the case? It's an interesting conversation because you talk to five people, you're going to hear five different answers. I, let me, I'll put on my e-com hat for a second as an e-com business owner. I hate giving the margin to them. I don't love some of the restrictions. I don't love the way it works sometimes. It's difficult, but they're the big guy in the room. You you kind of have to be there. And and if I had to tell you why some aggregators only really want Amazon businesses, I've heard 10 different answers from people. But what it all really comes down to is is how they operate the business. They don't they most of these brands they're buying already have a direct site. So they're getting that direct portion anyway. But typically they know that the metrics of Amazon, if they get it in there and they keep product in FBA and they keep people looking at buying it there, that's where all the, the sales happen, even though they lose that markup. Uh, and because of the FBA fees, the storage fees and everything, it's still just the biggest in the game. And at the end of the day, I think they feel very comfortable with lessening the amount of work day to day that 3PL has because you just keep pallets flowing into the warehouse then you don't really have to worry as much about some of your direct uh, fulfillment. Uh, if you talk to 10 aggregators, they're going to give you 10 different answers. At first, I didn't didn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's where they're headed. I mean, I think that part makes sense from a logistics standpoint, but from like a pure risk standpoint, I mean, there's been so many things um, we've seen in like our own business, like our Kindle business got suspended, nearly shut down twice. Mm -hmm. So whatever... I mean, Kindle is is basically private label to a degree. You're private labeling information products, putting them on Kindle, and so in in one in one day, our business almost got completely wiped out. And I mean, uh, we've had we've had people that you know we know that they ship stuff to Amazon. Amazon screwed it up, and you know they're they're suspended. They're in a pickle. Like they don't view that as a risk. I can I can see how like you know using your own three PL service yeah. all this is a risk. But or it's it's maybe more of a headache, but yeah. I would say surely it's less of a risk to your you know that five hundred thousand dollar profit going to Because if you set ten entrepreneurs in a room and and said the same scenario to them, I bet you nine out of ten would say if I had a choice, I'd rather buy the direct dot com that I have all the leads, I control the customer, and I curl the highest margin. It seems to make sense on the surface from a standpoint of conversation. The reality is is that that's just the power of Amazon. Some people believe that. You know, your conversion rate is going to be so much higher. You look at some of the session percentage rates and the closure rates on Amazon. It's much higher. There's so much trust there. So many people just want to be able to do it quickly. They feel like that the barrier to purchasing is going to be so much better by selling it on Amazon and they'll risk that, that, uh, you know, that margin to be able to do it. But you also see that there's a lot of people that weren't really hard in 21 purchasing companies that are taking a little bit of a pause now because things in theory and practice are two different things. So I think that they're starting to understand that there's got to be some things you've got to do much better uh, to be able to make this thing scale on Amazon. But I don't disagree with your point at all. It doesn't seem as logical, but that's the power of Amazon and it's the power of them scaling these companies that are already in there. So cool. no, I, mean, I think we should move on from, uh, from Amazon. Well, yeah, yeah, I do want to move on from Amazon. My last question, but I wanted to segue this is like what percentage of your buyers are 
aggregators, would you say? I think that they said, and, and this kind of shocks people, that uh, I think only 30 or 35 percent of our businesses in 2021 were to aggregators. More were to individuals and uh, and other things. But right again, you, you, if you looked at it from a dollar standpoint, it's going to it's going to flip that because they're doing most of the bigger deals. Uh, but the volume. Uh, purchases are still with individual investors, which it still may be in 2022 because there's several of the aggregators. If you read stories online that aren't purchasing this year, or not much. Um, so I think it's going to be a lot more in 22, 22. They'll be either individuals or smaller boutique aggregators, as I would call them, people that are trying to do two, three, four sites versus 50 or 100. So I think that, you know, I think that's really where it's going to be this year. There's going to be some great opportunities. It's a really weird year for M&A because so many people had supply chain costs, increasing things due to inflation last year, that they may not have made as much money as they wanted. They may want to run it for six, nine, 12 more months, or they may want to sell out of frustration at a little bit lower multiple. So we're seeing a lot of that across the board. It's really a hard, it's a tough market. But what's interesting is the same time that we're thinking that we had a record April. So it's just, it's really hard yeah. to tell what's going on with it. Yeah. I feel like um, as someone that's building businesses or whatever, you know, doing business for yourself, especially online, it's almost best to like, especially if you're in the beginning stages and you don't have anything to kind of ignore all these high level trends of inflation and supply chain is issues and kind of just get started. Cause we always say like, I feel like being there and learning the lessons is going to be way more valuable than just sitting around and thinking like, Oh, is now a good time because inflation is up 10% every month or whatever. I, I mean, think there's also areas to look in that might be really big for your business. Like I'm going to a show June 4th, the sixth in Mexico city. It's all manufactured in Mexico completely untapped. You don't want to deal yeah. with the supply chain stuff coming from China. This might be a great opportunity. You're talking about a brand new product line, a whole new country that wants to start investing in manufacturing. Yeah. I'm going to be there myself. Let, I'm let anxious me, to see it. If I could actually ask you some questions about that, because I've been uh, in my spare time, been learning a lot, a little bit more about like um, trade routes and, and China and supply chains and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, and I'll give you the best answers I can, but I don't know a lot either other than where I've been manufacturing for 20 years. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a pretty basic question, right. but from what I understand, um, when, when COVID hit and because of the lockdowns in China and a lot of, a lot of companies kind of view the supply chain in China as a little bit more fragile now. So from what I understand, there is a trend of things moving to Mexico, like the right. kind of like the, the, not, not like the high tech manufacturing, but kind of the lower and manufacturing that you see in China. Is that something you can verify? Like a lot of stuff going to Mexico that's been in China. Yeah. I actually can sort of go the opposite of what you just said. It was my understanding that Apple is investing in significant manufacturing in Mexico. Some big companies over the next five years are really investing in Mexico and North American, what I would call North American manufacturing to not bring it in from overseas. So I think there's a lot of people making that pivot. And I think a lot more just because of you look at the timing things only, you know, you, you've got several things going on in China that changes this. Number one, there's lockdowns. Number two, it's just increasing the amount of production. But number three, you know, it's prices are going up in China, too. It's not as if it was any, as inexpensive as it used to be to manufacture. There's a developing middle class in, in, in China. There's all, all kinds of I mean, I could talk for hours about things I've heard from manufacturers of why they are having issues and prices are continuing to go up everywhere. So I think that the biggest thing is, is that you need to think about looking at it just because it's going to give you a fallback position. You know, we, we manufacture in China and Taiwan in my business, so both countries. 
but I would love to have something that's domestic where I'm uh, not domestic, but something that's easily not have to come on ocean freight if I could possibly do it. So it just makes sense from every standpoint for people to have other options in case these things could get worse because I'm not talking to anybody that isn't taking slight price increases. So that's, that's a consistent. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. If, if this does start becoming more of a trend that products start being manufactured in Mexico, that would probably be the only time I would consider doing our own product brand because yeah, just the overseas stuff, the containers, the whole shipping thing, that's what really turns me off. And it just creates another thing to learn another headache for us. But yeah, I think if you do it right, it's not that bad a thing. It's people yeah. can get through it and it's, it's easy, yeah. but right now there's all kinds of reasons to diversify. And right now as people are starting to look at other manufacturing, it's getting hot. You know, people think about it, it's going to take you a year to make that move. So if you're going to think about doing that, then you might start it yeah. now. If you're interested in 2023 or 2024, I'm going there just to look creatively at what kind of opportunities. Yeah. I think what Mike was saying is that it's just hard. Like for us, you know, we focus on SEO. We focus on Google ads, on building websites. Sure, It's hard, you know, to, to focus on so many things. Like yeah. we know a lot of people that do Amazon FBA, kind of their specialty not their specialty, but they know about marketing on marketing on Amazon and they know about supply chain stuff and importing. So it really is oh, kind of a whole, yeah, yeah, it's like a whole different skill set than we currently have. So it's yeah, hard. I mean, to, you guys do a great job at that. And actually what's interesting is some people think that's the harder part of it. I mean, you talk about it like you don't do the uh, manufacturing and importing. If you find the right agent, manufacturing, importing, and getting stuff here is not difficult. What you guys do is pretty magical, truthfully. It's amazing. Oh, well, maybe, yeah. maybe we'll <laughs> think about, maybe we'll think about that. Well, I do want to pivot more to talking about, um, you know, the selling like the, the, the sites that we particularly make. Um, I mean, so, you know, there are, you know, there are, there are aggregators, like you said, it's not, it's not necessarily a huge percentage of buyers. It's more of the people that buy that are buying like the really, really expensive stuff. If you're selling a website, you know, under 700,000, potentially under 800,000, there's plenty of non aggregators or people that are interested in buying, you know, content sites and drop shipping sites, whatever, regular e-commerce sites. So what do you think is like the biggest uh, mistake people make when they try and sell one of these websites? Yeah. Uh, well, let's go back to the pillars. First is risk. We already talked about that. Your sales need to be increasing. Worst case, flat, typically going to be increasing. So if you think about that curve, you want to be at that peak when you're selling right about in there that you want to make sure that you're getting towards the top. That's the first thing. Risk. You need to make sure you have don't have skinny skews like only three where if one falls out, you lose a third of the business. And then the second thing is going to is is growth. You need to make sure, like I said, those numbers are going up. Third is transferability. Most of you just have a direct site or an Amazon account. That's not that difficult to transfer in an asset sale. And the final one's going to be documentation. And that's really where it'll land. If they don't have their SOPs together, if your books aren't good in QuickBooks, if you're not making sure that your financials are tight, you guys of all people know how they jump into books. Everything needs to be separated. So if you have multiple sites, multiple things that you have, make a corporate entity for each. Keep a QuickBooks for each. You can always combine them back in if it's, a, if it's something together, but make sure that your books are solid on accrual, only in cost of goods, which you ship that month, and make sure that when you're ready, that everything looks like a million dollars. Because here's the thing. The only the thing that will cost you a sale in any of these businesses, if you seem not confident in 
something you're giving a buyer. If they don't believe it, they're going to walk away. If you have snap answers like you guys did all the time, it's going to be able to get done. Even with your alls, you had some commingled book issues. We still got through it because your answers were strong and you were committed to exactly what you're doing. So you always need to make sure you understand your numbers and that you can convey them correctly to people. So that builds trust in the purchase process. That's the biggest thing to trying to get to close. To Sorry, let me ask you one question about that. Um, when you're saying you're recommending accrual versus uh, cash accounting for this, right? Let me let me make sure I understand the difference. So accrual is you're saying you're only counting the cost of goods that were um, shipped out that month, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you what I guess what's the best way to handle if? Yeah. Let me put it this way: you some dropship businesses most likely, and if I'm thinking of dropship traditionally, I'm not sure how you guys end up getting billed. Most likely, if, whatever you sell in April, you get a bill from your vendor, so it's pretty simple for you to put in. Because just whatever you shipped out that month. Well, what so I was going to say is sometimes actually like we have a – like with one of our stores right now, our vendor, like they'll take all the orders. Then they'll bill us like, I don't know, like a month or two later. So it can get kind of – the best way we always find to present it is like a running yeah. total of like order versus cost. Yeah, the best way to think about it is this. Let's put a dropship business on the left that that vendor bills you every month for what you ship. That's simple. That can go right on the cost of goods side. In an e-com business where you're, you have your own brand, you may have bought $100,000 for the product in April and sold 20000 of it. So your P&L doesn't need to say 100000 needs to say twenty. And the, right. and the other 80 needs to be in your asset account for your inventory asset. What I see a lot of people do is if they spend $75,000 on product that month and sold 30000 they leave the seventy five and they have a negative $37,000 gross profit. That's impossible. Right, right, right. Not yeah, no, that's... It has to be on accrual, not cash, which you pay out and you need to build that inventory asset because your inventory is sold on top of it. So most likely you can sell the business for 500,000. And if you have a hundred grand inventory, that's other money that comes into your pocket. That's the difference between cash and accrual. And a lot of times don't fear that because if you've done it on cash, we can flip it. And what I mean by flipping it is we, if you, everything is bought in the last year, then let's say you bought $200,000 worth of product and you have $30,000 sitting in your warehouse. What we do is net that to the 170 and balance it in the year. And then you have 30,000 at the end. So we have an ability on paper to flip to accrual. And it's a, it's a well-recognized practice with buyers so they can at least get a picture in accrual. Okay. I want to ask you another question, something you said about uh, growth. So when you say that you kind of group risk and growth and they seem, they seem like kind of the same things to me, but sure. when, when a buyer looks at growth, are they necessary? So say we have last April to this April. Um, do they typically look and say, okay, the site is earning more or the, the, the business is earning more this April versus last April? Or is it like they like to see a straight line like month over month? I think they like to see a straight line month over month. So you can see that consistency. I mean, I think obviously yearly totals are important because it gives a picture of a business. But, you know, I've seen businesses that have been up four or five percent, but down 20 percent a month and a quarter you know, mm -hmm. right recently. And I think that the, you know, at the end of the day, it's what have you done for me lately? I mean, how well are your sales trending in that trailing 12 months is what people really want to look at. And that's, you know, kind of the difficulty that you run into is that if you don't have that growth, it's just, it's a matter, think of it this way. It's like, if you're trying to buy a house, there are hundreds of houses on the market. If you don't like a kitchen, you're going to move on to the next house. And that's kind of the same way in e-com. If you don't, like the the rate of growth or you don't like that maybe if it's flat or declining you can see that 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 your profit's going to dwindle so against other inventory on the market it just doesn't look as good that's kind of that's why they get dinged and that's one of the reasons that higher SDE businesses get higher multiples they're just simply more attractive against the other things that you're selling against gotcha interesting did you get on sorry did you get onto the fourth thing i don't i don't know i don't remember if i cut you off transferability you mean 
I, I yeah. don't know if it was the fourth thing. I'm not sure. You talking about the fourth pillar? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the yeah um, transferability is the uh, is the third actually, and and documentation is the fourth. So just making sure your books are tight and QuickBooks yeah. or zero or whatever you're doing. Uh, but it, but again, the risk the risk on the top one, the first one that we use is first pillar. It, it's a lot of different things. It's how many SKUs, how intense are your SKU sales percentages? Are you growing? Is the business does the business require a lot of capital? Like if your margins are thirty percent and seventy percent of two million is your working capital need, that's one point four million on a two million dollar business to be able to buy product. That's risky. So there are a lot of things that go into the risk profile. Buyers look at them completely different. We try to look at all the things that can be there and price the business to where it's at least attractive there. And understand, no matter what we list at, we can come up with a multiple, but it doesn't mean anything until it hits market. It's going to be the market value. The market's going to speak. It's either going to talk to you or it's not. And then you're going to know the multiple is either right or wrong. Yeah. I mean, so let me let me ask you a question here. So let's say we have uh, someone who's doing a dropshipping business and it's making whatever per month. And then maybe they acquire either another dropshipping business that's similar mm -hmm. or they acquire like a content site that is also, again, in, in a similar niche. Would they be able to turn around that website like, I mean, because you're basically inheriting more earnings, right? So you're getting in more profit. So potentially your your multiple would be higher. So like if they buy, you know, just a straight content site, but now they bundle that in and they have an e-com plus content site, can they just completely like flip that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's an interesting point because you have two really good assets. And actually what's interesting is people that aren't really used to selling businesses, content businesses are really valuable. I mean, they can garner some serious multiples because you don't have a cost of goods in it. If you're scaling good advertising, let's say that you have sponsorship, like I've done some food sites before that do like sponsorships, like we'll bring in Kraft macaroni and cheese and make that against something else or whatever the hell it is. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a lot of sponsorship income out there in content. But the answer to your question is yes. If you have a blog that's going to lead into an e-com site that sells similar products and you're billing the person on the advertising, then you're getting the sale on the inside. Obviously, you can see you have a very valuable business. And what you're going to end up with is a crossbreed of a multiple, meaning the higher end content multiple and maybe the lower end resale multiple or dropship might marry together in a really good way that you have something that's even more uh, marketable asset. I love that idea because right now we're starting to see the first content aggregators come out that are only buying content because all they want to do is, is what content sites do, which is churn advertising. It's all they care about. So it's coming up a lot now. So on, on the on the new site, we have the contents that we have listed with you right now are, are some of those content aggregators taking a look at that? <laughs> You put me on the spot right here on our listing we put out yesterday. <laughs> I don't, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. That's all he's doing. He's asking of the you know the several hundred down the hundreds of downloads that we got on the who are aggregators. So that's a great question, and I honestly had I'd have to dive into it and look. I can't tell you, but I do know there's a lot of aggregators out there looking for it. Because here's the thing: if you have like you have a zodiac site, if you had a let's say a piece of jewelry that did nothing but zodiac colors, I don't know, or signs or zodiac signs, whatever it is, right. To have that and push it in and, and be able to gain that and be able to have leads and people coming to your site, it's it's a gold mine. It's it's great. You need to put it around it. And it's easy to scale. They're very inexpensive to run, as you as you know. So they're extremely valuable. Content might be garnering higher multiples than just about anything we have right now. Well, the way that I thought it basically like you talk about aggregators, it seems like there's a lot of um like private money involved there. You know, they're getting like funding and then they have, you know, a, a pool of capital to go and buy a bunch of contents or uh, a bunch of like brands. I felt like that's easier to come across. You know, it's easier to get like an SBA loan or, you know, whatever, get venture capital money sure. to buy a physical product because people understand that. How are these aggregators getting the money to aggregate content sites? 
Yeah. Now that that's a great question. And most of them, I mean, you don't have a whole lot of content sites that jump over, you know, into seven figures. That's the first thing you're going to say. So a lot of times there are, there are six figure purchases, which opens up a lot of the buyer pool. Um, there's actually some creative financing out there for anything you do, whether it's e-com, dropship, Amazon, you know, the, everybody knows the Amazon lending, the PayPal lendings of the world. If there's a company out there, if anyone's not really read up on them called Bupos, B-O-O-P-O-S, um, that actually does financing for e-com businesses to be bought. They do not finance content um, because it's, it's uh, but they do it on physical products. So if you're looking to buy something, Bupos can sometimes look to help you get you financing. I do not know of anyone out there right now that's other than SBA that would be uh, a candidate to be able to do any kind of content site financing. I can probably look into it with our other brokers. There may have been some things that come across, but most likely it'd have to be SBA. And for SBA, you really need to be at 400,000 or 450, I think it is, I think is the limit or above. So it's, it's much different to finance, but most of the content sites we see selling people just buying for cash because, you know, it's a, it's a quick cash business and it doesn't need the cost of goods. So it's not as intense. Well, we're almost at the hour mark. Um, I'm looking in the chat to see if we have any uh, questions. A lot of people were asking questions about like things that aren't really suited I mean, for this stream. Yeah, but uh, let's see. Let's see if we could find one. Yeah, um, they have something. Type them in. What's yeah, that? If you guys have any questions uh, before you know head off? Now, now is the yeah. time. This, this uh, add on Azar. Um, so we're so before I, being sold. I guess it wasn't really question. for Pat. How long was the site running before we sold yeah, that's it? That's a great question. I think, you know, we we probably fudged it a little bit with Zodiac Science, a little bit newer, but we typically like to see 18 to 24 months on anything. And if it's an acquisition, we'd still like to see another year on it, provided it has the 18 to 24 months. You typically need that. Think of it this way. I like to see year over year, month over month numbers. So that typically dictates two years. Uh, yeah. It's a good ear mark. Right. Well, yeah, and the site that we sold, the dropship site that we sold with you, with you um, we had started, I think, beginning of 2018. I want to say, mm -hmm. so right in there. If that's if that's what you're asking, um, I forgot. I didn't see what his name. That was yeah, it's like four years about. So yeah, and then there was another one. How long does it take to build a content site? Incredible and based on or seem credible, or it's based on daily video. You guys would be better to say that you build a hell of a good one. I mean, but I mean, again, I I, I think that. Anytime you're building content, you need 12 to 18 months yeah. too. So, I mean, that's just an earmark, yeah. but I don't know exactly. Yeah, I would say for a content site to be, to get the max amount selling for it, I would say if it's brand new, like two years, because you have a year of the Google sandbox and yeah. then you don't, you don't want to sell it just as it's kind of reaching its peak state. Well, you know, well, you probably would. Pat, you talked about if you're doing an acquisition yourself, you said wait around 18 months before you resell it again. I would say 12 to 18 months. We had someone come back 12 months after and it needed a little bit more time. Let me show them one thing. So I know we're getting ready to get off here. Uh, As he's doing that. Uh, yeah. There. The one thing that I think is really important and, and one thing you and I, you, we talked about, if people are starting something brand new, there's no time like the present to make sure that they're prepared. Number one, quite like and always try to help you exit your business if you're in this. And this isn't a pitch because at the end of the day, we have plenty of listings. What we try to do is help entrepreneurs exit their business. So, if anybody gets a chance to go on Amazon, this book right here, Exitpreneur Playbook, was written by one of our, our principals, our owners at Quiet Light. This is exactly what we do to sell a company. If you read this cover to cover and you adhere to what it's talking about, you'll be prepared to sell your business whatever day you decide to do it. This is a great model. And for people that are trying to aggregate or thinking about it, this is a, a one of our advisors, uh, Walker Dibel, wrote Buy Then Build. And the whole premise behind this is buy it, grow it, sell it buy it, grow it, sell it. It's the aggregation model in practice. 
And it's both books will really help you think about how you want to build your e-com business and eventually how you want to exit it. Both of them from each end. So it's it's great research. I'm available anytime, paddockwhitelight.com. If you have questions, let me know. If you want to do evaluation, we're not here to sell someone. It's not, I'm not a used car guy trying to put you in a business sale today. That's not what we do. What we try to do is prepare you to exit and make sure that you're doing the right things to get there. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe. Well, actually, I would. I, now I think I get the point, but I wish I had, I kind of wish we had come to you like three years ago for in some regards, you know, it could have. I think the learned, timing's great. I think you guys are yeah. doing fantastic things. I'm yeah. excited for the next one. I guess what I'm just saying is if you have a website that you're thinking about selling in the next couple of years, it might not be a bad idea to have it evaluated ahead of, ahead of time, even if it's like six to 12 months from now that you want to sell it. Just that'll give you some time and it's not listed to get everything in order and make some tweaks and you right. know, get it. Get because it here's what time. ends up happening. I just did some financials for someone this morning. I was on a Zoom. They had channel advisors spending $35,000 a year for basically what was no reason. We're going to look at the financials and know things you can improve give you ideas. We've talked to so many people. We have so many partner vendors. Like we have Catforge, who's a financial company that will help you with your QuickBooks. They'll clean your entire system up and make it perfect every month. So your transparency to buyers when you're ready to go is there. So lean on us if you need anything at all. And there's there's no ego here. You don't even have to list with us. We just want to help you get prepared. What was the name? Catforge? Catforge, C-A-P-F-O-R-G-E is an online accounting company. They'll jump into your QuickBooks, clean it all up, and help you every month maintain it. It's very inexpensive. Hey, all right. Take a look. Yes. Cool. Uh, Big Steve Dillard said, thank you for this interview. I'll definitely have to come back to it as I get more into the space. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, I think this was a little bit more of an advanced conversation for people that are really at the point that maybe they've sold a website already. Maybe they're getting ready to sell a website. And um, yeah, I mean, I hope people found value in this and kind of we were able to highlight some of the pros and cons of what we do and selling a site, how to do that, some of the struggles. So any final words, Joe? No, that's it. I got to turn my camera off. People are coming into the, the room now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Pat. Um, thank you, Pat. Really appreciate it. Hey guys, anytime you want me back, I'll be here. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Everyone build assetsonline.com slash playbook. Go there. Free web class, how to build a hundred million dollars in online assets. And as always, Take it easy. Thanks for listening to the Build Assets Online podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget, subscribe, share, and leave us a rating on whatever platform you might be listening from. And if you're ready to learn how to build your own online business portfolio, start now by visiting buildassetsonline.com slash playbook. We'll see you in the next episode.